0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: I'm David, sexaholic. Hey, David. Uh, I thought I'd uh, talk for a few minutes and then see what your own experience with being a newcomer as a, you know, as a newcomer or working with newcomers is that, uh, you know, how we can sort of build on that. Um there are so I I have things I say to people, as I've said several times that I, I say to remind myself. And one of them is um, that I forget this entire program overnight. And it sounds like a bit of an exaggeration, except if you actually lived inside my skin and brain, you would find that's not that far off. Track. Um, I've been waking up as a sober sexaholic for quite a while now. Uh, it's just that I forget it. <laughs> I really do. I forget about prayer. I forget about calls and reading and surrender and any of those things. Uh, and what happens is as the day gets going, I just do the stuff I always do. I do my contract. I I get on my knees, uh, I say, God, I offer, I mean, God, I do the serenity prayer, um, and then I say, God, thank you for yesterday, uh, grant me the strength as I go out from here today to do thy bidding, uh, grant me the willingness, um, to, uh, be free of selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-seeking. May thy will not my will be done. Or something very close to that. And I, then I and I have to usually go find some private place because I'm embarrassed to get on my knees in front of my wife. And, and then I do my contract and probably do some reading most mornings or the phone starts ringing and I talk to people on the phone. Then I'll probably call somebody. Uh, if I haven't done my reading by then, I'll do my reading. If I'm doing my gratitude list that day, I, I used to always do it right away. Now I do it about once or twice a week. Um, well, by the time I do all that, I kind of remember this stuff. And I think, oh, well, God hasn't abandoned me today and I really can do this stuff. And it's no big deal. I just do the same thing I did yesterday. And it's a weirdness that goes on inside me um, that I, I just forget it all until I do the same stuff. And that's why I just have this routine of doing the same stuff every morning. Now, there are part of there's a part of me that wants to say that's an imposition or why do I have to do that or something. And I have to go back to the reality that brought me into this program, which is, I woke up every morning aroused. In fact, for the first nine years in sobriety, I woke up aroused. It turned out, finally, my sponsor and I came to this deep understanding. He said, David, why don't you get up and go urinate? Oh, that'll help. Yeah, it'll probably help a lot. And it's amazing how these things finally kind of come around. And I thought I was destined and doomed to wake up aroused every morning, um, that I was going to be sober and turned out just like everything else in this program, whenever I say the way it is today is the way it's always going to be, I'm wrong. (laughs) And that was no exception. They went away. Um, And then I had surgery and it really went away, but that's another story. Um, But prostate cancer is God's ultimate joke for a sexaholic is my, my uh, opinion. But I suppose you can make a case for other cancers too. Um, but I have found that if I just do the same... It never bothered me to do the same lust stuff every day, to plot out the day. to I would literally wake up figuring out when I was going to masturbate. My wife would leave for work somewhere between uh 7 and 7.30, and then I would probably be able to masturbate around 8 o'clock. But if things were complicated, I could do it at 8.30. I mean, I have this whole schedule in my mind. And did I want to cross-dress today? Did I just want to sort of, you know, do simple masturbation? I mean, you know... It never bothered me to have complex thoughts in the morning. What I thought was, oh, you can move my stuff. That's fine, Jeff. Go ahead, just move it. Put it on the floor. Um, And so I just had to start some new ways of thinking. And the longer I've been around, the two things that I think hit me really on this score, not only that I forget everything, but also um, this disease, my recovery truly is just for one day. And that's my contract. I do, I commit myself to one more day of sexual sobriety. No sex with myself, no sex with any partner other than Jane from now until and then whatever's 24 hours later. Uh, if I have to do the contract again during the day, then I just, you know, from now until tomorrow afternoon or whatever. Um, so I just, I do that. The other thing is, the longer I'm around, the clearer that thing is to me. They say in AA, you know, All you have to do in AA is don't drink just two simple little things. Don't drink and change everything in your life. (laughs) And and it turns out that's pretty descriptive. You know, don't don't act out sexually and change everything else. And so part of what I have to change is my morning routine, the way I think about situations, the way I put myself in the center of every picture and just stop doing that. And there are various tools. This is one of the most effective the rubber band. And um, I had a friend of mine in the program up in Portland gave me a rubber band to bring down here. And uh, I had it actually on my pile to pack this morning. I chickened out. Uh, it's a rubber band that's five feet in diameter. And he said it's a whole body band. Uh, but uh, I chickened out to bring it through because I didn't know what they're going to think if they see this in the inspections at the airport. I got chicken. But anyway, but the rubber band and, and the purpose of the rubber band is simply as a reminder. And, and I learned the hard way that I have to tell people, snap it gently, no welts, because uh, a lot of people want going along. Uh, and when I snap it, I just say to myself, God, whatever I'm thinking about, and it's, it's very specific in my head, whatever obsession I have. And that's what I tell people who ask, what's the rubber band for? I say it's for obsession, because that's what it is. Uh, whatever I'm obsessing about, I give back to you. Not because it's right or wrong, because I can't handle it. And I just have to be willing to change everything in my life. Now, the reality is God actually doesn't need me to change all that much. It's my attitude that needs to change, and that's where I let go. Uh, The one other thing that I'll share very briefly um, and only uh, by reference um, is that because it's at the back of the white book, I often tell newcomers to be sure to go read the section Overcoming uh, Lust and Temptation. And the reason is that's really the concrete tools that I first had that got me sober in this program. And I I want to be sure to pass those on. They were in a different form when I started with them, but they were basically the same. And every tool that I use on a daily basis is in here um, in one form or another, sometimes kind of obscurely, but they're there. And um, so I do send newcomers to read that. Uh, do they go and read it? Well, some do, some don't. Do they understand it? Eh, some do, some don't. Uh, I, my obligation is to pass on the program that's been handed to me, though, and, and that has uh, worked really well for me. And the other thing is, um, if I do tell someone, oh, you've got to go read this, uh, that's fine. I'm welcome to do that. I just have to go read it, too. So I know what that means. Uh, what, what's worked for you? What's not worked for you? What do people have thoughts about in terms of newcomers? Anybody? There's no sequence. Hi, Bob. I had a lot
2: of trouble, I, I had a lot of trouble uh, getting information on meetings and schedules, and uh, and I, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, somebody said. Well, I watched 28 Days. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not, but it's where you know the, the, the gal's an alcoholic and and, uh, and she commits to do 90 min- minutes and, or 90 meetings in 90 days. And uh, I said 90 me- meetings in 90 minutes. Uh, uh, and and I've been going to AA meetings, been going to SA meetings, been going to SLA meetings. Um, and I, I just kind of had trouble getting it all together. It took me two or three weeks to kind of get a schedule and get a get a get a kind of a routine down. Um, but I found that um, I guess my question is, you know, why do we have all these different groups? It's just sort of they just kind of sprung up on their own. Why do we have SLA and SAA and SA and all that? Why can't we? I guess like more than one. Group.
1: <laughs> but, you know, God's sense of humor for me is just amazing. And uh, w- during the break, I was talking to a guy who's not here. I th- Oh, he had to go to couples. Um, and he was talking about he'd recently been to Atlanta, and he wanted to go to a meeting on Tuesday night and Thursday night. And he called the hotline, and they gave him the meetings, and he went. And one was an SAA meeting, and the other was an SA meeting or SLAA or something. And I'd forgotten until he said it that Atlanta has a unified schedule. And, and so when you call for a meeting, you're going to get whatever meetings at the time you wanted to go. And his question was, is that a violation of traditions? And the answer is, as we understand it, absolutely. (laughs) Now, is it a problem? I don't know. Uh, No place else in the nation that I know of does that. Um, It may be there is. I just don't know. But Atlanta does, and I'd forgotten it until he said that. Um, The, you know, the, the differences in the fellowships are... Significant in some ways. Um, one of the things I really like about SA, because it's been so important to me, is that an, going from an SA meeting to an AA meeting, and even to an NA meeting, is pretty simple. There's just no big difference. Uh, obviously, there's a difference in terms of content, but not style. Um, going from the other fellowships to AA is is a bigger distance usually not always it varies place to place i find for me the easy access to AA is really important another thing for me is the sobriety definition really really definitions really are different um, they're not right or wrong in my experience there are a lot more women in SLAA and quite frankly, very selfishly, that's the reason I don't go. Because <laughs> um, it's too much struggle for me. I, I went through a three-year period when I had to do needlework during meetings because I not don't have much of a history of acting out with men, but I was scanning crotches the entire meeting. And and it, guys' crotches, I mean, you know. So I just did needlework because I had to look at that. And it, it I just am more comfortable in meetings that um that have... More guys, I'm, I like having women, but it's a ratio, you know, it's Just different for me. So that's SLA has a lot of women. Typically, it's more relationship focused, which we have a lot of relationship issues. We tend to be more focused on specific behaviors rather than attitudes. We figure the attitudes will change if you change the behaviors, which is what A.A. does. And and that's where our bottom line comes. Our bottom line is just conventional religious morality. It's no big deal. Um, it's just a big deal in my head, that's all. And, um, and I find that it, many times when I might have lost my sobriety in another fellowship, I'm still sober in SA. And, of course, the opposite can be true, too. Um, ultimately, though, what matters to me is that I'd be, I need to be able to go to meetings more than I need to not go to meetings. So I do go to the different fellowships if that's the situation, and um, I don't worry about it. I just figure I'm there for me, and I'll take care of it. Keeping our materials printed, keeping schedules available, this big issue, can we list meetings on the Internet? Seattle has all their meetings on the Internet. They've had them on for three years now. It's caused absolutely no problems whatsoever, you know. But in Portland, there we have four meetings on the Internet out of our 22 or 23 meetings. Uh, there's still a tremendous resistance to putting them, making the schedule available. Uh, my own personal opinion is, and my experience in watching, is that God takes care of who shows up and, and what happens in the meetings. Now it's okay, it's important in fact, for us to remind each other of anonymity and of the need, you know, to not gossip and things like that. But uh, I'm all I'm sort of on the open meeting side. But not everybody's comfortable with that, and they really want people screened or just go to certain meetings to start or things. And then the schedule becomes harder because we don't distribute them as freely. In Nashville, we did do a mailing to 6,000 therapists and uh, ministers in the town and did it twice over a period of years. And uh, I don't think we sent them the entire meeting schedule. We might have, but it was the bulk of them. And again, it had no negative impact. Let a lot of people know we existed. Some of them refer to us. Some of them wouldn't. So that's our experience. Did that respond to some of what you saying? Other people? Yeah.
3: I'm Van Sexaholic. Um, this question is more, um, it's part of this topic, and it's also touches a little bit more on the 11th step. But... Uh, in your opinion, where do you draw the line between, um, you know, when what we say to a newcomer, in terms of, uh, you know, mailing out uh, flyers to therapists as opposed to putting an ad in the paper, um, uh, as opposed to having a sign somewhere or something like that? Where do you draw the line, um, you know, what to you what is acceptable versus what is not acceptable in attraction versus promotion, and what to say to a newcomer?
4: Oh,
1: you know, for newcomers, my own experience is the most important thing is for them to get to a meeting and to begin to under begin to identify. I don't care whether they understand or not, but begin to identify. Um, so anything that gets, because you know. All you have to do is open the morning paper and you'll see someone who's got our disease who hit the wall. You know, I mean, every day, you know, and and uh, it's not as a woman who otherwise didn't last in recovery said, this is a program for those who want it, not for those who need it. And, you know, that's really my experience that um, that it has to be for those who are ready for it, you know, and I don't control that. I do feel, though, that that once they're ready for it, it should have as easy access as possible. So and my I haven't seen any negative consequences to being fairly available. I respect people, though, who either because of their own anonymity, because this is still a disease with a lot of stigma attached to it, which AA is kind of beyond. I mean, it's socially acceptable to be an alcoholic now, you know, for better or worse. And it certainly wasn't 50 years ago. So uh, and. So I respect that in people. And then I have this exhibitionist problem anyway. So I have to test run everything through that test. Am I just into my exhibitionism again? And I don't know. So I tend to go with the group conscience. And, and, and so it's the most important thing for me is for me not to draw the line. And even though I may say everything I've just said here, and then our group says, well, we don't want to be listed on the Internet. And I say, that's fine. That's the group conscience. And that's what works for me is to just keep going back to bring it up to the group conscience and at the same time to let the group conscience rule. Uh, I think the newcomers eventually find that very reassuring because they realize that no one, whether he's a guru, which I'm accused of being sometimes, or whether uh, he's just a struggling drunk, uh, no one's going to run the meeting, going to run S.A., and that's very reassuring to any newcomer who's wondering, well, who do I need to watch out for? And the answer, honestly, is nobody in our fellowship anyway. Uh, or if somebody is, don't worry, they'll get drunk and leave. You know, I mean, so that sounds callous. But in fact, is that responsive to yeah. somebody else? Yeah. My
5: name is Mon. I'm a sexaholic. Um something that, that's that been on my mind since you said it. Uh, when you was talking about, um, you know, when you're in a situation where you're like in an argument or a situation where things are getting heated and I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding that concept of like st- stating like, you know, like you said, thank you for caring so much, you know. Or you might be right. Like, it, like for for me, um, the hardest thing for me has always been to share how I was feeling towards towards a certain situation, and for me to it's always been basically my pattern to just kind of like let it go. And so how so how is it? How how can you? I guess what I'm saying is, how can you share how you're feeling without, without, um, goodness. In other words, in, in, in other words, if I basically, if I totally disagree with what the person is saying, you know, how do I go about doing that in a way, sharing, sharing my feelings in a way that won't, that won't, you know, cause me to be prideful or whatever. Does it make sense? I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: Does anybody here have anything on the top of your head that I've said that you just think I'm flat-ass wrong? Anybody? I mean, that's fine. I'm looking for something. <laughs> well, let's imagine that I had said something to you that you just thought was really wrong. Now, and let's say that we don't know what kind of a bond there is between us. It's just an unknown. I mean, you know, we met in the parking lot. and We've had a few passing words today, but it isn't much. We don't know much about each other yet. So, but I've said something that you think is wrong, or you've said something I think is wrong. How would you know how I feel towards you about that issue or any issue or just in general? What would give you a clue? Uh, You would say something about
5: it. What would I say? Sure. (laughs) Probably
1: that you would just... Yeah, yeah. Can I play with you a bit? You okay? Okay, I don't know your limits. Um, You know, your way of going about recovery... When I've done that, I just end up going right down the tubes, and I'm a. I just I'm not trying to take your inventory, other than to say what you're doing reminds me of what I do when I'm about to head down the tubes. Now just backing off, then, what do you? What kind of relationship was I trying to show? Somebody else. What was I trying to show? I, I had an intention in doing that. I was doing it. Yeah, why would I do that?
2: Right.
1: Your experience. Right. I was concerned and... Of and your yeah, I tried. I mean, I was saying I'm not trying to take inventory. It just reminds me of how I'm, what you're doing reminds me of what I do when I'm about to head down the tube. And did anybody ever hear what Jess says we had to give each other? What's the only thing we ever had to right. give each other? Love. Yeah, and acceptance, but I'm going to collapse it into love just because it's interesting. So the only thing, I'm in this program, the only thing I have to give you... Now, if I happen to hit on something that's true for you, I assure you it was accidental. I don't know. I I was just picking something I thought was safe. But the only thing I have to give you is love. Now, the only way I can express that love is to say, you know, when I'm acting that way, I'm in deep deep doo-doo on my way. So Now, if I didn't care... About you, what would I do if I truly just didn't care? Yeah, yeah, we are saying we can't haze. I I wouldn't do anything. You know, I would. Boy, what'd you think about the? What's the local team here? Basketballer King. What'd you think about the Kings game? When you've just told me that you haven't been able to stay sober for a week and you're wondering what to do you know but well, do you think the kings are going to make it this year you know um hey you know we're going out and having a soda afterwards at the drive in you want to come you know actually even that's a little but that's what i mean by that you know the thank you for caring so much is that even someone who's furious with me is desiring to interact with me now I may not experience it that way. I may just get my defensiveness up and I'm gone, due to, gone, bye-bye. But, but in fact, that's what's happening. When I can rebalance myself and say, "Thank you for caring so much," even if I don't understand what they're saying or I don't think they're right or anything, then I don't have to go cattywampus. I don't have to fall over. You know. Um, the other thing is, uh and more, I think this is more directly an answer to your question. My experience myself, and I cannot see this in myself. I can only see it in you. So I have to rely on other people to do it for me. Is that if I am able to approach you out of love, I can say anything I want. And if I have any other motive, like to control you, to change you, to humiliate you, to whatever, then I better go somewhere else. You know, and the only way to test it is to run it by somebody else first. I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've called Bob and said, Bob, I want to call this person and I want to say this to him. I think it's really important whereupon he does the only healthy thing, which is he begins this hilarious laughter that goes on for some period of time. And finally, I say, oh, I suppose that I better not. And. And the the thing, I, I have a key, I have an internal key that actually has turned out to be, save me. Well, I have two keys. One is if I really feel I have to do it, there's a part of me that kicks in at that point and says, yes, David, and it's always wrong. And that helps. That feeling I have to do something is 100% wrong. <laughs> the other thing is, and, and this one was more subtle, but it's actually more useful, Uh If I feel I have to make a decision about something, if that thought goes in my head, I need to decide this. I need to make a choice. What I've learned over time is that means always that I'm incompetent to make that decision. Now, at first, that didn't make sense to me because, I mean, this floated into my head and I thought, where is this coming from? And then I realized... You know, David, if you're competent, that is, if I have the capacity, the knowledge, the whatever it takes to make a decision, what do I do? I do it. I don't think about it. I just do it, you know, because it's okay. I'm okay holding a microphone eight inches from my mouth because my decision-making powers are sufficient that I know this is the proper distance to get a decent pickup, and it doesn't pop, and I don't get all those things. I don't think about this unless I'm telling you about it. I just do it. That's true with all decisions. The other side, though, is equally true. If I'm conscious of making a decision, I'm already beyond my point of competence. Because if I had been competent, I would have done it. And then I need to turn to somebody else. And I need to say, should I do this? Should I not do this? And then I have to listen to what they say and generally do what they say, unless they're also befuddled. That's that's a long-winded answer, but that's that's some of the things that keyed on other people.
6: Yeah. Forrest, Addicted to Lust. I just want to thank you for all the little um, tools, of the spiritual tool bag that you've thrown out here today. Uh, one thing I haven't been using is contracting. I think that's really powerful. But in relationship to the newcomer subject that we're on right now, Bob and I were talking after the last intergroup meeting. And, um, gosh, I've had a lot of, uh, not a lot, okay, ten uh, guys that have asked me to be their sponsors uh, sponsor over the last couple years um, year and a half, and this program seems to be really difficult, and they 'll just you know disappear and and not be coming to meetings anymore and uh, Bob gave me a section to read in the big book, which really helped me about that about letting go of people and being there for the next person to serve. But the, the issue that we were talking about in newcomers is step work because this is a 12 step program and what we offer is 12 steps and that's where the solution is and that's where the progress not the perfection is. And what, what we were seeing is that step work isn't happening. That someone will come into the program and a year later, a year and a half later, they still won't have done their first step. Or they'll get their first step but, you know, they won't ever really work on their fourth and then they'll disappear. So from your experience in Nashville and Portland, what can we do better in the Sacramento Fellowship around that?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it is just having conversations like that. Uh, Let me say my own experience on the steps was I, I came into this program. I had my initial sobriety, which was miserable. I was really in pain, physical pain, you know. And I finally took some Advil, and that helped a lot. But it was just, it was incredible. I didn't know you could hurt that much and be sober. And and then I, I got through that, and out of desperation, I did a first step. Now, my first step took two meetings. I don't know why, but it just did. And I was petrified when I did it because I was sharing this stuff about me. It was garbage. And there were a lot of people there I didn't know. And what I had thought was going to be true was true, which is the majority of them vanished and never came back. (laughs) Oh, good. My story's out there in the whole community. You know what? It it never caused me the slightest problem in the least. Um, It was garbage. And everybody has garbage. And that was my garbage. And I don't think they cared. I mean, there are a few people around who still remember it. But, you know, that's it. Uh what happened in my own mind was I took all my garbage that day. It was around the end of August, 1988. I put it on a big New York City barge, garbage barge, that was attached to me. And then I cut the rope. And every day I'm sober. I'm one day further away from that barge, which still has all the garbage that was there. And I've gone back and thrown some on that I've remembered since. And it's just as stinky as it ever was and some of it's rotted even worse in the meantime the thing is it's not connected to me anymore and there's only one way i can connect it back to me and that is to act out again and then i can have it all back if i really want the garbage i can have it back so that's the image i use well um my second step the my sponsor <laughs> you know some people are into elaborate second steps um and a lot of people have been exposed to gentle path and that does its thing and And uh, we do do a written first step because it's useful in my experience. I've had people not do it. And all I can say is it seems.
4: And a neighborhood. I
1: was I was ready to do battle on step three and I was beyond it already. So anyway. So then I did do a 4 step. I did use a workbook, uh, a Hazelden workbook. um, And then I went back and did what I'd been told to do in the first place, which is to use page 65 in the AA Big Book, which turned out to be, they both were useful, but that one turned out to be a lot more effective. And and it's been that way over and over again in this program. If I'll do what other people have told me to do in the first place, I'll probably have less time involved because that's probably right. And my way of doing it is probably wrong. And... um, so I did both, and I did my fifth step, oh, in about April, uh, having come in in August. Um, but my sponsor promptly quit SA and has never come back after my fifth step. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't matter either. Uh, I did the fifth step for me. He was the other human being. Everything I had hoped would happen in the fifth step, step—that that stuff I had sworn I would never tell anybody was finally just out on the table. Uh, all of that happened. And and it really did lay the foundation for a new program. And within about a month and a half, I got a new sponsor who I had for the next seven or eight years. I called him every day, as I said, at 730, and we had that relationship. Uh, step six and seven, um, I read a guy I know says every night when he goes to bed, he surrenders all his character defects to God. And every morning he takes them all back. <laughs> And that's pretty much what I do with 6 and 7. Um, it's probably the most active, other than Step 11, it's the most active area of my program on a daily basis because I have character defects coming out the yin-yang. And I just get to take them all back every morning and give them away every night. Um, I did Step 8. Shortly after I did my fifth step, I probably delivered my list to my uh, sponsor um, in August. It was around then. I had 55, some names on the list, 57. Uh, when I walked into the meeting, when I walked out of the meeting, I had about eight. And and in my experience, that's been pretty much the ratio with people I sponsor, that these long lists comes in and these short lists go out. Because the critical issue is, how would you harm them? And if I actually did harm, well, then you got to make an amends. If I didn't do any harm, and the most common thing was I was just a jerk and really obnoxious, self-centered, and self-seeking, but I didn't harm them, then... Just live with it, is what my sponsor said. So I did the steps, and it took me another year or so probably to finish my ninth step list. Um, And I go back regularly and try to sort of mentally assess and occasionally write about, are there any amends I've missed? And and so far, all I can say is I haven't found them yet, if there are. Uh, Tenth step, of course, is when I make mistakes on a regular basis to do something about it. Eleventh step, you know, turn my will and my life over to God in the real sense. And the 12th step, pass it on. I am very much of the school, I'm really responding to Forrest's question, I'm very much of the school that the best way to do the steps is really fast. Now, I didn't do them really fast myself, but I did them pretty fast, and by a lot of SA standards, like you were talking about, I did do them really fast. Um, The reasons are two. First of all, it's what you said. This is a program of working the 12 steps, and either we work them or we don't work them. But there's no in-between. That's what that halfway measures stuff is all about. I mean, either I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. And that's why step three is, am I going to work steps four through 12, or am I not going to work steps four through 12? Now, there are tricks. I was telling someone earlier, if you're ever stuck on a step, it's I was told this, and it's turned out to be true, it's because the, you haven't done the previous step. In other words, we never get stuck on a step. It's because it's always due to the fact that we haven't sufficiently worked the previous step. And so that's been useful. So I go back. But the other thing is the deep secret that we really hide from newcomers. And I trust none of you will spill the beans too quickly. And that is this. Once you work through the 12 steps, guess what? You're going to work them again. (laughs) In fact, you're just going to work them over and over again. And so you might as well do it fast because it doesn't make any difference. You're going to do it again anyway, and you'll get the benefit of working them. So it's an all win situation. So that's
2: how I deal with that. Can you go in a little bit more deeply about turning things over to Guy when you go to bed and taking them back the next morning? You kind of lost me on that one.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm quoting uh, a guy about that uh, on a tape. Uh, But it's it's really true, it's just not the bed, going to bedtime. it's not true. And someone asked earlier about surrender. Is whoever that was still here? Have we... Um, you know, I... It, in the uh, overcoming lust and temptation, I think it's number five or number six, it's about surrender. And I, I, I really... I didn't struggle with it too long. And I wondered why. I looked back and I thought, how come that wasn't such a deal for me and it, it really has been a big deal for lots of people. And I the only response I can come up with is, I think I was so desperate. And I also, for whatever reason, I think I had tried everything possible before I came in, that nothing was left. And I really feel sad if someone thinks that there's something else they could try other than the 12 steps. It's fine. Uh, I don't judge them. I just feel sad for him because um, I'm just grateful that I'd, I'd really tapped out on everything. I really, and I'm a very clever, very thoughtful, have good memory, all that kind of stuff. And so I knew that I was, I had run out. Uh, this AA guy I know says, uh, I don't know him personally. I mean, he's on tape. I know him. And he says, we all had the moment when we knew the jig was up, when when there was just no other options. And he said, you know, as long as we can remember that moment, as long as I remember midnight on August 1st, 1988, I don't ever have to go back. The first day I forget it, I'm on the slide and it only goes down. Um, and so I, that's where I start. Then the other thing that happened, though, and it's more an immediate answer to your question and your comment, um What I discovered is what I have to surrender is not the thing itself, whether it's a lust object or a fantasy or euphoric recall or, you know, getting rich fantasy or, you know, being important fantasy or any of those things I do. What I have to surrender is my right. It turns out that's what I was holding on to. And it says this in the White Book. Um, I wasn't I might or might not be holding on to a specific image or thing or something but what I was always holding on to is my right to it. You know, I have a right to think this, to feel this, to say this, to have this happen, whatever. And uh, it turns out it's a lie. <laughs> you know, I got it backwards. And it turns out also that that's what I have to let go of. So when I'm talking about surrender, to me, what it means is my right. Now, that's the same with my character defects. This is what you originally asked about. Um, I am I keep a list they're in the front of my date book right there of my character defects that came out of my fourth fifth step, fourth and fifth and so I'm angry, I'm judgmental, I gossip, um, I exaggerate, I lust, I um, complain a lot, uh, a negative thinking. Um, I'm not listing all of them, but they're just there. I can read them anytime I want to be reminded. And what I have to do is well I don't have to read them I live them. What I ha- oh I'm late for meetings. Uh, I overcommit. I overpromise. Uh, some guy called me once, a very promising young man, and what, <laughs> and what he meant was I make lots of promises. Uh, it was embarrassing, but anyway, I am that I am that guy. Um, what I have to do is surrender my right to hold on to him. That's what the six step means entirely ready to let God remove these defects of character, and that's what I don't want to let go of. I don't want to let go of my right. I'm willing to let go of that woman or that fantasy or that situation, as long as I can hold on my right to have it. Well, it turns out that's not on the list of choices. Either I let go of it or I don't. So so that's what surrender means, and what I do is I surrender my right to have my character defects. Then there's this humiliating awareness that God keeps many of my character defects around because they're useful to him. For instance, my coming late to meetings is a really good reminder how disruptive and how disrespectful it is. and uh, I get reminded, everybody else gets reminded, and you'd be amazed how many people show up on time. So I guess God finds it useful. And uh, that's true with a lot of my
7: character defects. I'm Jane. I'm a sexaholic. Um, I've been in the program for about two months. And um, I guess that I'm kind of obsessed with... Uh, my relationship with my wife and uh, losing my family, and um, I'm having troubles focusing on me, and I'm just too consumed with trying to save my relationship, and um, she has been involved with Essanon, and uh, she's in such a better place than I am because she's ready to just push the relationship to the side, give it six months, you know, we're not even going to concern herself with the relationship, she's working on herself, and I'm working on myself, but I'm still have this. I'm still consumed with the thoughts of losing my family. You have a magic pill. Yeah, yeah,
3: I do actually. You got one there? What do you got? This is uh, this is on page ninety-eight. It goes. To, I've got it marked there.
8: Go ahead, read it. It's great.
3: Yeah, because I got I got hit with this. You know, I was feeling just like you, and I walked into a meeting and and. Sat down. I was late. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And um, this is this is what you know. I almost had to read it. God was a little bit more merciful than that. And this is what it says. Now the domestic problem. There may there may be divorce, separation, or just strained relations. When your prospect has made such reparation as he can to his family and has thoroughly explained to them the new principles by which he is living, he should proceed to put those principles to action at home. That is, if he is lucky enough to have a home. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. The most incompatible people discover that they have a basis upon which they can meet. Little by little, the family may see their own defects and admit them. These can then be discussed in an atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness. After they have seen tangible results, the family will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless of what anyone says or does. Of course, we all fall much below this standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately, lest we pay the penalty by a spree. (laughs) This is the part that really hit me. If there be divorce or separation, there should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. The man should be sure of his recovery. The wife should be should fully understand his new way of life. Their old relationship is to be resumed. It must be on a better basis since the former did not work. This means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it is to the best interests of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together has come, it will be apparent to both parties. Let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. We have seen men get well whose families have not returned at all. We've seen others slip when the family came back too soon.
1: My, um, that's wonderful. And that section begins job or no job, wife or no wife. We simply do not stop drinking as long as we place dependence on another person ahead of dependence on God. Burn this idea into the consciousness of every man. He can get sober regardless of anyone if he'll but trust in God and clean house. The, um, But even more importantly to me, um, in 1991, um, in August, my mother was diagnosed with uh, metastatic uh, cancer in her liver and... I was told she had about three months to live, and uh so we were really upset and I was going up to uh, see her in um uh, it was about eight hundred miles from where i lived and and so I was heading out of town. And I called my sponsor and I said i 'm going up to see my mom, and it's real important for me to do that uh, before she dies, and for her to know that you know i'm there and I hadn't been able to do that with my dad because I'd been drunk, and this time I was sober three years. And my sponsor stopped the conversation and he said, "David, why are you going?" I said, "I'm going up to be with my mom, you know, she needs me to be there." And he said, "David, why are you going?" I mean, he was so obnoxious. And I said, "Well, I just basically repeated that." He said, "David, you're going for yourself." And I remember when he said that, I was I was hurt. I thought, "No, this woman's dying." And He said, no, David, you're going for yourself. You're going because going up there to see her makes you feel better. And all of a sudden, it was like this mist parted. Because I realized this wasn't just my mother. This was people I worked with. It was my wife. It was my kids. When I was always doing these things because they needed it, because they expected it. And what I was not able to do... And I just had a chance then to change it, was to say, I'm doing this because I wanted to do it. And for no other reason. And the truth is, that was reason enough. And it gave me, and then as soon as I had said that out loud back to my sponsor, because it took me a while to get it through my skull, all of a sudden I thought, how many times has my, have I said to my wife, I've got to go to a meeting? And she said, No, you want to go to a meeting. No, I've got to go to a meeting. No, no, you just want to. I mean, she had been trying to tell me this for years, that I was operating out of my self-centered motives and it was due to something outside of me, whether it was her or the kids or meetings or recovery or whatever. It was just for my self-centered. And all of a sudden I had a freedom that I didn't even know existed. I did not, I had not been willing to accept until it took my mother's death, dying in that case, to be willing to accept that it was okay for me to do something out of, just because I wanted to do it. I didn't have to lay it at someone else's feet. Well, the other thing that happened was as I got there, I was also willing to, able to realize, I had actually stumbled into this earlier, but just clarified it. That, if I did not work my recovery program first, I would trash the marriage anyway. If I wasn't sober I had proven that i didn't that wasn't a matter of debate or conjecture that was fact. and so, if I wasn't putting sobriety first, I was going to trash it all. I would trash my job, my kids, my marriage, everything and and it, as I said, I'd done it. I was going to do it again. Secondly, that the only thing my wife ever wanted in me was for me to be healthy. And so what she really wanted, even if on a given day she thought it it was pissed at by going to so many meetings or calling so people or whatever, what she really wants is for me to be healthy because that's the only way she has me anyway. And And so even if she wasn't into it on a given day, that's what I had to do was just work the program, essentially exactly what was just read, you know, take care of myself, work the program, and then only after I began doing that did I get the biggie, which I think is what you want, which is I realized that, that beca- that's what became attractive to my wife. Because what my wife was learning is she never had any control over my disease anyway. You know, I was going to act out if I wanted to act out, and she couldn't do anything about it. And what she needed was the reassurance that I was doing what I needed to do to not act out. And she still, she said that as recently as yesterday. She's so glad I do this stuff because she doesn't have to worry about me. And, and and then we can have a basis for a marriage, which is equals. So,
7: I'm Jan. I'm a sexaholic. Um, I just want to get current with something that I'm. I guess that I've been denying is the fact that uh, my, um, the time that I struggle most with my sobriety, that I have to be honest with myself, is the time when I see signs of reconciliation. And um, something that I need to get current on and um, something that I don't know why I didn't put the two together. But that uh, too much of my actions, too much of my sobriety is not being done for myself, but rather for my wife and family. Thank you. Just the way it is.
4: Yeah. Uh, it, what you say hits home for me. Um, one can. I'll call it semi-conclusion because I'll probably have a different opinion about, about it tomorrow. Is that um, the more I obsess about getting back with my my wife, uh, the more I realize how off the program I am. Um, and and furthermore, I I also suffer from exactly what you say that you know when when I sense reconciliation. Um it it scares me, and uh, I have a couple of hypotheses about that, but you know one is that I probably wanted that all along um and there's a dozen other possibilities um anyway, I just wanted to reflect that. Thanks
1: You know obsession is really ugly to the outside because we're disconnected from other people we're probably doing stuff that isn't really healthy for us or other people to do and yet when i'm in it i can't see it (laughs) you know i'm totally incapable of seeing it but i'll hear people people talking about it and i'll say
9: oh that's
1: what i'm doing you know oh and and do people know why people in a.a all have a bald spot up here because they're always going oh my god i did it again you know where's the hair off
10: I'm Ed sexaholic. I was just gonna share for a moment on the same topic. One of the great blessings in my program was a separation from my wife. It lasted almost three years, or two to three years. Because during that time it gave me time to focus on my program and I was heavily focused on my program and I went through oh, a few months When we did get back together is all of a sudden instead of being alone and able to focus on my thoughts and stuff like that Here was this person right in my face all the time and and creating while pushing my buttons a little bit so that uh, that Whatever program I learned uh, I had to be I had to be using real fast, you know, and I didn't always succeed but uh, so the time apart was a, a good healthy thing for me and If I may ask one question that I just want to know, it doesn't necessarily relate to to newcomers, but it may. How much program do I need now to stay sober? You know, it's the kind of thing where uh, I have a few years sobriety and uh, I'm resting on my laurels a little bit. I appreciate what you said earlier with regard to uh, uh, a reading commitment, and I'm planning on making that a part of me. But how much program, I want to, uh, you know, the desire is to get normal or back into the mainstream of life, but I know I'm a sexaholic, and I know I need a foot in that say, how much do I need? Well, um, there are various
1: things that have come to me in that I'm David Sexaholic. Come to me in that regard. One is that's a program of comfort that my sponsor used to say, and he got that from his AA sponsor. If, if I'm getting uncomfortable, which for me means keeping secrets, that's almost invariably where it begins, um, then I need to change whatever I'm doing. And probably it means go to more meetings and do more program stuff. Uh, the other is to just be honest about who I am. Now, I have this great blessing. I have really crappy vision. I feel really sad for any of you who have normal vision. Or if you wear contacts, I feel sad for you. Because, or if you've had that surgery that's corrected your vision, I, I really feel sad. I'm not being smarty here. I often am, but I'm not. Because when I was standing in the airport this morning and scanning rear ends and crotches... I took my glasses off. I was so happy. And there's so many people who who suffer by having normal vision. And the same time, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is put my glasses on and literally, if I take them off, I'm probably going to go to sleep because that's the only time I take them off is when I go to sleep. And so when I take them off, I'm always putting them back on to wake me back up. But um but what what it, what it, i i have to admit that i have a disease that i've lost my legs i'm never going to grow new ones now in my case it's legs that allow me to stay stable stable when i'm around sexual stimuli i just go crazy I, and i'm just wired that way it's just the way i am and i I am that way, though. And so I have to do whatever it takes for me to be okay, which is the equivalent of glasses. Chuck C's thing, new pair of glasses. That's what it's all about. And, um, and the model that my sponsor gave me was to go to one to two meetings a day. So I don't go to one to two meetings a day, but I go to four or five in a week. Um, I read almost daily. Uh, And I read a fair amount most days. I write a gratitude list. I do a contract for sobriety every morning. I get on my knees 90% of the mornings. Um, I um, talk to people on the phone pretty much every day unless
9: there's some physical reason I can't. Um, And that's just what it takes for me
1: to lead the kind of life I lead because I can put glasses on. And it's great. Now, what is it for you? I don't know. People have different prescriptions. They need different things, uh,
9: to be okay. I think the important thing is to be honest about what it is I need and what, be willing to go to any length to get it, to stay that way. Uh, not sure it's a formula, but I think the honest, but I do know that there's no level point, though. It's either up or down. And, and no, none of us go along on this plateau. Other than briefly, I mean, and um, and I don't want to go down, so I keep working at going up. Is
10: that the central part of your life?
9: My sobriety is the central part of my life for the same reason I said it's Jay. Right? Said to Jay, if I'm not sober, I'm going to trash the rest of my life anyway, and I'm not. That's not an exaggeration because I've had some close calls in the last couple of years that have reminded me this is this is just descriptive, and um, and they're always the same. They begin with a sexual fantasy, which is where this disease began for me anyway. Only then it's like down. Uh, so is sobriety the central thing in my life? Yes. Um, does it have to come through essay? Yeah, most days it does, but in fact, it can come through any number of ways. What I have to have is a deep and effective spiritual experience on a daily basis. and Then I'm okay. What?
8: Oh, you can read it. Peter Sexaholic. Hi, I'm, just, I'm on page uh, 85 of the big book, Into Action. It's easy to let up on our spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do for... Alcohol is a subtle foe, that's a subtle foe. We are not cured of sexualism. What we really have here is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. And I just would ask then, can you make the distinction between um, having I look at sobriety as a gift? Since it's not something I earn or something I do. It's, it's something I receive from my higher power, which allows me to do the steps so I can spiritually grow. But the key to me, doing, doing the steps is spiritual recovery, spiritual healing and recovery, growing, spiritually growing. That's the essence of this, this whole thing, not sobriety. Sobriety is like the precondition, allow it going. But the distinction, like the ask you make, and I think it's very important, is uh, being sober versus being a dry drunk. Because I can quote, say I have 25 years of essay sobriety. I can be dry drunk, and that means doesn't mean much. I don't have much, to, I'm not carrying much of a message. Though.
9: Well, that's a really important. Um, you know, when newcomers come in, it's just getting sober at all. That's the deal. Uh, and dry drunk, in case anybody doesn't know, means to have the symptoms of our disease, even though we are not acting out sexually in our case. Uh, and in 12 and 12, it says that the symptoms are anger and depression and those being obsessive and things like that. Um, I feel about the dry, drunk stuff pretty much the way I came to understand the when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And that is, I will have dry drunks. It's just, you know, I have a self-centered disease. I am going to start thinking and acting in ways that are self-centered. And when I do that, I get sick. I'll focus on whether my wife loves me or not. And I promise you, I get really sick fast. Uh, the only good news is I feel so awful right away, I'll probably do something about it. And, and usually doing is either calling my sponsor or calling someone in the program or the next person who is stupid enough to call me, they're going to hear about it, or writing about it, doing a gratitude list on it, or doing some reading or going for a walk or just getting on my knees, which is actually, of all the things I've listed, the easiest to do and most effective often. Take some action, in other words. Just do something about it. So I just view the dry drunk stuff is inevitable. Now, can I see it? Well, maybe. If it goes on or if I'm really scared, however, I probably won't be able to see it. In which case then my sponsor will say it or someone else will say it. And then my job is to say thank you. Thank you for caring so much. You know, and do whatever action I need to take then.
1: Maybe One more person, and then we'll wind up. I'm
4: Jim, I'm a sexaholic. Hey, um, um, Something that you said, Jay, um, is true for me, too. I know that the thought of reconciliation is something. the self-centeredness of, of having that kind of connection that I'm taking care of myself by being in recovery. Um, I'm not motivated by getting approval from somebody or um, being dependent on them or manipulating them. Um, so I guess just a warning to me that I need to keep coming back.
2: <laughs>
1: Thank you, Jim. I'm David Sexual You know, everything keeps changing. And, and the way it is today is not the way it's always going to be. And it can be really gruesome today. But it'll be better tomorrow. Clouds will blow away. Or maybe the clouds will come in. It was a good day yesterday. It'll be an awful day today. That just happens. And if we keep coming back, as you said, what will happen is we'll keep changing. And if we keep changing, then the people around us will change. If only because they don't know what else to do. And And that's what will allow God to work in the relationship. And what I encourage people is if you're in a relationship it's apparently because God wanted you there so accept it and do whatever you need to do to stay healthy yourself first and build a spiritual relationship and then let God take that relationship wherever it's supposed to go next now is that easy to do oh no it's terribly it's terrifying to do that and it's very difficult Um, it's just the easier softer way I do worry, I've seen couples slip into sexual anorexia, and it might be sexual anorexia or it might be relationship anorexia. And the thing that concerns me is when I watch it, because I can feel a tug in myself, is it's just ego on ego. It's, you know, this isn't going the way I want, so it's going to go this way because this is the way it has to be, and it's that rigidity that, you know, God doesn't work that way. God's fluid. The clouds blow in, clouds blow out. You know, the sun comes up, sun goes down you know people are born people die and stuff doesn't stay the same so anytime I want to be rigid I know it's my ego it's not God because uh, that's not God's style and and so I have to keep coming back to that and I, I spotted I got it I mean I do exactly that and at the same time I also know it's, it's not what works and so I come back and find out what does I want to thank you all for having me today it's just been a delight uh, good questions uh it's forced me to sort of look at some stuff in myself that I hadn't anticipated, and I'm grateful to you, and uh, I hope it's been helpful to all of you, too. And, uh, and as Gene used to say in Nashville, uh, I'm grateful that I'm sober today, and it's something for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. Thank you.